0: Please open up your Bibles to Psalm 13. So, Psalm 13. We have uh, put our Ephesian sermon series on hold. Um, I'm not going to forget where we were. We're chapter three, verse one. Okay, we'll be back there. I'll surprise you when we come back to it. Uh, but we'll be spending the next several weeks in the Psalms uh, today, looking at Psalm 13. Uh, Psalm 13, like many other Psalms, has uh, a heading or a title. And when you look at the little heading or the title, which is part of the, the Hebrew text, we see that Psalm 13 is a Psalm of David. And that David is King David. So we know that, that he is, is the author. However, we're not told uh, when in David's life that he wrote Psalm 13. You know, as you work our way through it uh, this morning, if you're familiar with uh, the life of David in, from 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, then, then you, may, you may be able to think of. Uh, an occasion, maybe even multiple occasions where you think Psalm 13 might fit into David's life and where it could be written, but we're not exactly sure of the circumstances. What we do know is that Psalm 13 is, is a psalm of, of waiting and lament and desperation. That's how it begins, but there really is movement in Psalm 13, and eventually the waiting and the lament and the desperation eventually gives way to confidence and trust and assurance. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says, the three pairs of verses in Psalm 13, so there's six verses total, You know, verses one and two form a pair, verses three and four, verses five and six, the three pairs of verses in Psalm 13 climb up from the depths to a fine vantage point of confidence and hope. Now, also in reading the, the heading or the title, we not only see it's the Psalm of David, but we also read to the choir master. To the choir master, which makes it clear that Psalm 13 is, is meant to be sung by God's people. You know, we sang it this morning. I know it was is new and, and a different tune for us. We sang it this morning. Um, and, and, and listen, think about what that means. Think about what that means, you know, as, as um, really throughout the sermon that Psalm 13 is meant to be sung by God's people. Dr. Alan Ross says, The fact that Psalm 13 was deposited in the sanctuary for the Levitical choirs to sing indicates that it was written for the purpose of encouraging other afflicted believers who felt abandoned by God and at their wit's end, and not simply to remind people of an event in the psalmist's life. Okay, so Psalm 13 is written by David, but it's not meant primarily to tell us, oh, David felt this way one time. David prayed this way one time. As he says, there were many who needed encouragement for they too found themselves crying to God, how long, O Lord? And my guess is that there are many of us who who have cried that before. Perhaps there are many of us in, in a room this size who are, who are currently praying that, crying that. And that cry, how long, O Lord? That's the cry which really dominates the beginning of Psalm 13. And you see, Psalm 13 is quite different from the, 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 the psalms we've heard preached the last two weeks. It's quite different from, from Psalm 19 and Psalm 17. And that's one of the reasons why I, I love for us to spend time in the psalms, you know, from, from time to time, because they're, they're all so different. They're so different, and they, they, they really cover the, the whole range of, of our life experience. You know, John, John Calvin uh, called the book of Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, because he argued that you can find every emotion the human heart can experience, every emotion the human heart can feel, you can find it somewhere in the Psalms. Including life's griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, joys, hopes, cares, perplexities, uncertainties. You, know, you name it, you can find it in the Psalms. So Psalm 13 is for when we can only think to cry out, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? So hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life giving word Psalm 13. To the choirmaster, Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. and It's given to us in love for our good. So we'll be looking at Psalm 13 under three headings. Waiting in anguish, praying in desperation, and trusting in the Lord. So waiting in anguish, praying in desperation, trusting in the Lord. Waiting, praying, trusting. So first, waiting in anguish. So listen again. Listen again to the first four verses. And I want you to notice how David says over and over and over again, how long, how long, how long? You know, four times. Charles Spurgeon referred to Psalm 13 as the the howling psalm because David just says how long so many times that it seems as if he's howling. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So stop and think about this. I'm guessing I don't have to remind you to think about this. You already have, but have you ever felt like this? You know, your prayer of how long, O oh Lord, has essentially turned into a, a howling or a cry, crying out in anguish and desperation for God to answer, for him to move in some way that you can see and, and that you can detect, crying out in anguish for his mercy, for his grace, for some form of a relief. Right, for some indication that God hears, and that God knows, and that God cares, you know, have you been there? My guess is you have. I see heads nodding. My guess is, once in a room this size, that some of us are there today. You know, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? As, as one pastor put it. How long, O Lord, is the cry of someone who has walked with more pain and grief and disappointment and heartache and or setbacks and sickness than they thought they could ever bear? As we move our way through Psalm 13, we see this pain and this anguish and this distress for David really has three dimensions to it. First, it's spiritual in reference to his relationship with God. Second, it's personal or, or inward. In his own wrestling with his own heart and his own mind. But then third, it's circumstantial. And in David's case, involves literal enemies who are surrounding him. Okay, so first, it's, it's spiritual. It has to do with distress related to God. And so look again at verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you forget me forever? Will you forget me forever? Now, forget here does not mean no longer remember me. David is, is referring to God, God's appearing to not answer him, to not answer his prayer. David's not accusing God of, of memory loss or of amnesia. He's, he's expressing that, God, it feels like you know, you're, you're forgetting to answer me, to respond to me. You see, whenever we read that God remembers someone in the Bible, it most often means that God acts on their behalf. God acts on their behalf in accord with with what God remembers. Now, on the other side, on the other hand, whenever God forgets someone in the Bible, it often means that he does not appear to come to their aid. Therefore, it seems like, it feels like, it appears as though God has abandoned them. That God appears to be silent, he appears to not be doing anything. We look at verse one, then David asks, Forever. You know, will you forget me forever? Meaning, God, will this ever change? God, what started off as a little bump in the road seems like now this is my life. You know, will this ever change? Put another way, verse one is really asking, How long will you continue to forget me? And then we see, in the second half of verse one, he prays, how long will you hide your face from me? How long will you hide your face from me? And this reference to God's hiding his face is, is, is a reversal of the well-known ironic blessing from number six. It's often used as a benediction. I believe Juan Carlos used it as a benediction last Sunday. At number six, verse 24 to 26 says, the Lord bless you and keep you, The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. See, the Lord's face shining on someone signifies the Lord is graciously blessing them, that he's graciously and mercifully, abundantly showing them his favor. You see that? Now, we look back at Psalm 13, verse 1. David prays, cries out, how long will you hide your face from me? Here David is asking the Lord, how long will you withhold your favor from me? How long will you withhold your blessing from me? You know, how, how long, O oh Lord? You know, have you been there? Are you there right now? Second, we see David's distress is it's personal it's inward. Look at verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? I mean, listen to the anguish there. The first part of verse 2 refers to David's many attempts, his many futile and failed attempts to, to fix the situation himself. That he's wrestled with his own thoughts over and over again. He's taken counsel with himself in his own soul. But David cannot simply figure a way out. He can't think his way out of this mess. And then look at the second half of that sentence. Have sorrow in my heart all the day. That God does not appear to be answering David, so he keeps trying to think his way out of this difficulty, out of this dilemma, out of this pain, but he can't. Therefore, David has sorrow in his heart all the day, or daily, or all the time. Right, plan after plan after plan fails. Solution possible solution after solution after solution is no solution at all. And he has sorrow in his heart all the day. Right? How long, O Lord? Am I gonna keep wrestling with my own heart, with my own soul? You know, have you been there? Are you there right now? Third, this distress is circumstantial. In David's case, it involves literal enemies. You see, in the second half of verse 2, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, we're not, we're not given any indication of who David's enemy is. You know, it seems like it could be a, an insurrection of some sort. It could be a, a power struggle. could be referring from anything in David's life, from King Saul trying to hunt him down in the wilderness, uh, to uh, David's own son Absalom leading this rebellion, the civil war against David. We don't know for sure. We think about our own lives even if you do not have people in your life that you would label as, you know, your enemies. I think we can all relate to distress and problems and pain and uncertainty and stress caused by difficult people and difficult circumstances. And if that's not you, you know, come and tell me your secrets after the service, okay? But how long, O oh Lord, David cries out, my guess is that you've been there and some of you are there now, right? How long, oh Lord, is the cry of someone who feels abandoned by God, at least at some level, and they are essentially issuing their complaint that God does not appear to be answering their prayers, that God seems, God appears to be distant. Their prayers feel like they keep bouncing off the ceiling, coming right back down. So we cry out, God, will it be this way forever? God, will this ever end? God, will I ever see progress? Will things ever get any better? Right? Will the chronic pain ever end? Will my back stop hurting? Will the migraines go away? Will this new treatment finally be the one that works? Will there ever be peace in my family, in my marriage, in my friendships, in my relationships with my children? You know, will my work environment always be this toxic, this difficult? Right? How long, O oh Lord, is the cry of someone who has walked with more pain, disappointment, grief, heartache, and sadness and sickness than they thought they ever could bear? And That's what David is, is telling us is about himself and how he feels as he pours out his heart. But I don't want you to miss that David is pouring out his heart to the Lord. That he still, he feels this way, and he really does. And yet he's crying out to God in prayer. See, he doesn't stop crying out to God, running to God, running to the Lord, even though he feels this way. And so so don't don't miss that. Don't miss that. See, our second heading is praying in desperation. Look at verse 3. David prays, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. See, David feels abandoned by God. You know, will you forget me forever? And yet, David keeps praying. He doesn't give up. he not throw his hands up in the air and say, okay, I'm done with this. It's not working. But David knows he has nowhere else to go. So he keeps going to the one that he must go to. James Montgomery Boyce, I think, is very helpful here. He says, David whether by training, habit, or sheer discipline, call upon the name of the Lord. Learn from David at this point. In times of victory, call upon God, praise him. In times of defeat, call upon God, ask for help. In times of temptation, call upon God, seek deliverance. In the dark night of the soul, call upon God. He is our hope even when we are unaware of his presence. You see, dear Christians. I mean, from, from the youngest in the room to the to the most mature, call upon the Lord in prayer, in the good times and the worst of times. Call upon the Lord in prayer. Never stop doing this. I mean, even if you don't know how to pray, pray the Lord's prayer. Start there. Keep praying. You, you may at times feel as though your prayers is just ricocheting off the ceiling, bouncing back down, but keep praying. You know, be, be honest with God. He can handle your honesty. Be honest with him. And look again at the beginning of verse 3. Notice what David prays. He says, consider and answer me. So first David says to God, consider me, or literally look at me. Look at me, God. David is saying, God, please look at me. Look closely at my situation. Please consider, look closely at my dilemma, my problem, my pain. Now, obviously, God does not have to look closely at something to understand it because he already knows it. He already understands it completely. Therefore, in this prayer, what we see David doing is David is not settling for this feeling of abandonment. See, David knows that that this is not who God is. God is not the distant, forgetful God. That God is the intimate God who's always near to his people. David knows objectively it's impossible for God to not already and thoroughly and comprehensively know every detail concerning David, even his thoughts, even his problems, even his situation. You see, put another way, David does genuinely feel forgotten by God. He feels that way. However, David's feelings are not objectively accurate. That God does not need to be refocused on David and David's situation. Right, God's, God's not like I am with my kids, okay? I don't know, I'm probably the only dad who's like this, but, but I, I can be having a conversation with my children and I feel like, I feel like there's, there's a pause in the conversation and then I, I, I pick up my phone, I begin reading an email or a text and, and the next thing I know, Alicia's kind of shaking me. Richard, they're still talking to you. Can you put that down and look at them? And I, okay, I'm sorry, honey. Yes, I put it down. I'm sorry. Focus. God doesn't have to be refocused on us. He doesn't get distracted. That God is never distracted from his knowledge and his care and his concern for us. See, that's objectively true. That's what we see in other places in God's word. One of the clearest places is at the beginning of Psalm 139, which says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Therefore, God understands what David is feeling and what David is experiencing, and he knows what David means when David prays, Lord, come close and look and consider my situation, my plight, my problem, my pain. Second, David cries out, answer me cries out, answer me, in, in the beginning of uh, verse, in verse 3. The beginning of verse 3, answer me. And he says, answer me to, to Yahweh. Notice that. Notice that all throughout Psalm 13, that every time we have the word Lord, it always is in capital, all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and that's the way it's going to be in your, your ESV translation of the Bible. And that's, that means that word translated Lord is Yahweh personal and covenant name for God. In Yahweh, the intimate, personal covenant name of God is the name that David uses for God throughout Psalm 13. So the point here is that David cries out to Yahweh to answer him. David is crying out, my covenant making and my covenant keeping God, please answer me, please respond to me. I have no one else to go to, you are my God, please respond to me, please answer me. And then we see in verse three, he then prays, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Now, light up my eyes. So let's think about that phrase, light up my eyes. You know, at at first reading, you may think, okay, well, David is asking for illumination. He's asking for God to give him light or shine light through his instruction or for him to understand things. And and that would be reasonable, and maybe that's even part of this a little bit, but I think that the phrase, light up my eyes, here in Psalm 13, is most closely related to what we read in 1 Samuel 14. And in 1 Samuel 14, the Israelite army is led by Jonathan, and they've been pressing hard all day. They had not eaten, and therefore the army and Jonathan, they're weak and they're worn out. And we read in 1 Samuel 14, 27, that Jonathan had not heard his father Uh, charged the people with the oath, the oath not to eat anything, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright, that his eyes became bright, that his eyes were lit up, light up my eyes, that he was revived, his vitality was increased. And that appears to be what David is, is, has in mind in Psalm 13. So look again at Psalm 13, verse 3 Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. See, put another way, David cries out, God, consider me, look at me, answer me, help me, lest I die. I mean, that's what David means by the sleep of death. God, I feel as though I'm about to die, I feel as though I am dying. Okay, so then look at all of verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And so listen to that. Listen to how David, here in verses 3 and 4, in this second pairing of these verses he's i mean the first two okay the first two verses there's the the howling the how long how long how long crying out but here in verses 3 and 4 he he's presenting his argument with god he's pleading with god giving god reasons as t- to why god should consider him look at him answer him revive him provide for him you know lest i die Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David begins to present his case. He expresses his heart in verses 1 and 2, and now he's kind of presenting his case in verses 3 and 4. We're going to come back to that. But, but looking at verses 3 and 4, a commentator, Dr. Alan Roth, says, The point is that David is a faithful believer in the Lord the triumph of his enemies over him would be held by them as a triumph over David and his faith and his God. David's appeal is that if God did not want them to rejoice, the enemies to rejoice, then God would have to answer the prayer. You see, here in verses 3 and 4, David continues to pray through his desperation, through his feeling of being abandoned by the Lord. And one of the fascinating aspects of Psalm 13 is that David is honest about his feelings. I mean, he feels utterly abandoned by God, and David is logical, and he's rational, and there's a level of objectivity in the reasons that he gives God for why God should answer his prayer. I think that's important for us to see, to put these things together, the the honesty of our feelings in prayer along we are very subjective this is how we feel along with objectivity the objectivity of what's true about god according to his word the objectivity of what's true about us what we know is true about us according to his word pastor del ralph davis puts it this way he says do you see the combination in verses one and two there is especially the feeling In verses 3 and 4, the thinking. In the former, emotion. In the latter, reasoning. In verses 1 and 2, the affections are laid bare. In verses 3 and 4, the arguments are pressed. Not either or, but both and. and. The psalm implies that especially in prayer, you must hold both emotion and reason together. In a true knowledge of God, they combine. At the throne of grace, tears fall from your eyes and arguments from your lips. Now think about that. For some of us, you know, the emotions and the emotional honesty and integrity in prayer is hard, it's a challenge. For others of us, the objectivity and the logic and the, you know, the reasoning with God, according to his word, on his terms, according to his truth, that that's the struggle for us. But I think this is, the, this is what David is telling us. It's what God's word is telling us here. We've got to hold these together. We have to hold them together. So let me ask you, dear Christian, is that how you pray? Holding these together. Do you pray with honesty and transparency? Well, You should and you can. Pray with honesty and transparency. God can handle your honesty. But also, do your prayers reflect a true knowledge of God? Do your prayers reflect the truth of God's word? See, a wonderful way to to learn to deepen your prayer life is, is to simply pick one psalm a day. Pick one psalm a day and read it and then begin to pray through that psalm back to God. Pray back that psalm to God in light of your present circumstances, your present situation, your present concerns. Or pick one of Paul's prayers in, in, in his new testament epistles and begin to pray it back to god you see we want to be honest with god in prayer and we need to be praying objective truth and even reminding ourselves of adre- objective truth from god's word as we pray and that brings us now to the the end of the psalm and, and our final heading trusting in the lord and here we really see movement okay this is kind of the the, the turning point has happened as one commentator puts it, that in Psalm 13, hope itself despairs, and despair nevertheless begins to hope. You see, in Psalm 13, verse 1, uh, Psalm 13 begins in verse 1 with, how long, O Lord? You know, will you forget me forever? But then we read, in Psalm 13, verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Now, David's circumstances haven't changed. Okay, you know, his, his inward thinkings and, and uh, strategies, he's coming up with his own heart and mind, none of them have worked. His enemies are still there. They haven't been defeated. But what we see in verse five is that now his, his, he's seeing things more clearly as they really are. And he's focusing on the reality, the, the objective truth of God's steadfast love. And that Hebrew word translated steadfast love is hesed. And hesed is a very important word, a very, very big word, a word that, that I'm, I'm certain to not do it justice, and I see what time the clock says, uh, but, but it, it's a big word, it's a covenant word. And it refers to God's unwavering faithfulness to all his covenant promises to his people. That Hesed expresses the steadfast love and the faithfulness of a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who is always faithful to all his people. And not because they're worthy, but because he is. And not because they're perfect, but because he is. He's perfect, he's holy. Hesed is the steadfast and covenant love of God which pledges to never let go of us. Never let go of his people. Hesed assures us that God will bring all of his people all of the way home. And so look again at verse five. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, Hesed. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. You see, the Hebrew here communicates I have trusted and I continue to trust. The David is resting and holding fast to the promise of God's steadfast love towards him and all of his people which will not fail because of God's very character. Bill Ralph Davis reminds us that sometimes this is your only stay in trouble, simply what God has said about himself and about what he will do, which suggests how massively important the doctrine of God is for the Christian life. You see, David moves the way that he moves through Psalm 13 because David knew his God. So let me ask you, do you know your God? Do you know your God? Do you know his character, his attributes, his heart, his heart for you? Do you know his promises that are found in his word? See, do you know who your God is? See, it takes the whole Bible to tell us who God is, but a wonderful summary of what the Bible says, who God is, is found in the Shorter Catechism, question four ask what is god god is a spirit infinite eternal unchangeable now in those three words infinite eternal unchangeable are meant to be applied to everything that comes after he is infinite eternal unchangeable in his being in his wisdom in his power in his holiness he's infinite eternal unchangeable in his justice He's infinite, he's eternal, he's unchangeable in his goodness. He is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his truth. He's a big God. This is a big God, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. This is a God who can handle your life, who can handle your adversaries, your fears, your distresses, your difficulties, who can handle your sin, So you run to him, you trust in him, you keep turning back to him in repentance whenever you fail. You keep trusting in his grace, his assurance of pardon. You cry out to him in prayer and you be assured that he will always, always hear the prayers of his people and that he will always bring all of his people all of the way home. You see, in a world that's stained and marred by sin, in a world that's full of difficult people and difficult circumstances, there is no better source of confidence. Actually, there is no other source of confidence than our infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. Derek Kidner says So the psalmist entrusts himself to this pledged love and turns his attention not to the quality of his faith, but to its object and its outcome, which he has every intention of enjoying. You see, don't miss that. See, the lesson from Psalm 13 is not, listen, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know what, and, and work on your faith. You're, you're, you feel abandoned by God? You know what? Your faith is weak and your faith is puny. Get stronger faith. But that's not the point. The point here is, is lift your gaze. Lift your gaze off of your circumstances. Lift your gaze off of these people. And put your gaze on your source of hope. See, it's not not the quality of our faith, it's the object of our faith. See, no matter how strong or weak our faith is, it must be in the right object. In Yahweh, in our covenant-making and our covenant-keeping God. You see, here in Psalm 13, David asks, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Let me ask you, dear Christian, how do you know God will never forget you? How do you know God will never forget you? I mean, think about where you are, where we are in the history of redemption. How do we know God will never forget us? How do you know? Well, we know that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal divine son of God took on flesh and he dwelt among us and he lived a perfect sinless life for us, the life we failed to live, the righteous life. Life credited to us when we trust in him. And he died the atoning death in our place, on our behalf on Calvary's cross. The atoning death that washes away our sin in his shed blood. And he rose from the grave on that first Easter Sunday. Not only to prove that all of this is true, but that there is real resurrection life for sinners like us who trust in Christ. That we are given new birth, new hearts, We are raised to walk in newness of life. See, how do you know that Christ will never forget you? Jesus tells us he'll never forget us because he never even lets us out of his hand. See, in John 10, verse 28 and 29, we read, jesus saying i give them eternal life that's you dear christian and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand see christ can never forget you he won't even let you go he won't even let you out of his hand he's not going to forget about you over there because you're always with him See, the point here is that our faith, no matter how strong or how weak, must be in the right object, and our faith must be in Christ. He is the Savior we need, and, and, and we, listen, he, he will never forget you. He'll never abandon you. He'll never even let you out of his hand. See, friends, even the weakest Christian still gets the same strong Christ, as Sinclair Ferguson put it. And so look now at the very end of Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6. But I have have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Okay, listen to verse 6 again. David's circumstances, his enemies, they haven't changed. They're still the same. But David says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So put another way, David is certain that he will have such a song to sing one day. He still feels the way he feels, but he's confident, objectively, he will one day have this song to sing where he looks back at all that God has done for him. Okay, so what about you? What will you do whenever you find yourself asking, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I'll tell you, friends, you know what you should do? What you should do, what you must do is what you're doing right now. That you really should join the people of God in the worship of God Sunday after Sunday. And be daily and be weekly nourished and strengthened by God's word and his spirit and his people. You should put yourself under the ordinary means of grace, the the faithful preaching of God's word and prayer and the sacraments of the baptism and the Lord's supper. Because it's in the daily and the weekly reading, studying, teaching, and preaching of God's word. It's in scripture-soaked prayers and in experiencing the sacraments faithfully explained and administered that you will be reminded of God's steadfast love for you in Christ. And so let let me end with this. Let me end with reminding you of what Paul writes in Romans 8, at the end of Romans 8, that reminds you that God God can never forget you nothing can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for, for the Psalms and the way that they, they really do cover the whole the whole range of our of our experience in this sin-stained and sin-marred world with difficult people, difficult circumstances, with our own difficult selves. Lord, may we be people who, who run to you in prayer with honesty and transparency, and yet people who who seek to know who you really are according to your word and whose prayers are marked by the objective truth and the reasoning that we see in your word, in your promises to us. Father, please assure all of your people that you will never ever leave them or forsake them, that no one can snatch them out of your hand. There's no way you could ever forget them. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.